Wild Common Podcast. This podcast is funded and supported by Wild Common, an additive-free agave spirits company bringing you some of the finest tequila and mezcal on earth. Our goal is to help give transparency to the consumer, provide a cleaner spirit, and support sustainable methods of production with the families that we work with in Mexico. Our product should be available summer 2020. We will keep you posted. Salud. Welcome to another episode of the Wild Common Podcast. My name is Andy Barden, the host of the podcast and the founder of Wild Common Agave Spirits. Today's guest is Aaron Treeb. Aaron, to me, is uh, just a total role model, total rock star, an amazing photojournalist, and somebody that I also have the gift of considering a friend. We met years ago in Washington, D.C. at another friend's sort of get-together, and we hit it off instantly talking about climbing, and um, Aaron approached me and actually asked about a trip that she was going to be going on to document a group of women in Afghanistan trying to climb the highest peak. Of course, this was intriguing to me, um, and so we just dove into her project, and it turns out that she has created a film about this project, which we get into. After that meeting, I, I then you know followed her on Insta and checked out her website and looked at some of her previous work, and um, her background is, is just amazing, and she's really um, committed to telling stories that matter and stories that have taken an, um, a really large sacrifice both um, in time, as well as in uh, exposing herself to, to danger, going into numerous um, conflict areas, uh, embedding with military units that were engaged in firefights, and doing her best to, to visually document what uh, both war was like, as well as uh, PTSD. In the podcast, Erin talks about how she knew early on that she wanted to be a conflict photographer. And that, to me, takes uh, a special type of person. It's a, it's a grit. It's a determination. She's not hell-bent on adrenaline, but it is a commitment knowing that you're going into these areas um, where you may get injured or you may not return. Um, as a climber, as somebody who spends time in the mountains, you can always turn around, and you have control generally um, over the, the risk that you expose yourself to. But being a conflict photographer, in my mind, um, is just a notch up on the danger level. Erin's work has taken her to Israel, Syria, Palestine, Iraq, Bosnia, Turkey, and she brings a certain sensitivity to her work where she's really able to connect with uh, her subjects on the photo shoots that she's on and bring back images that create a certain sense of empathy. And this empathy creates dialogue and that dialogue, you know, is where change begins. Um, one of her projects called the Homecoming Project um, in the mountains of Afghanistan to help document the U.S. Army's 10th Mountain Division and then followed up on uh, some of the mental health problems that plague veterans when they come home. I think that Aaron's selfless approach to her work and the care that she has for her subjects really comes across in our podcasts. Um, she really goes deep on this film that she's working on called An Uphill Battle, which is a documentary about a group of young women climbing the highest peak in Afghanistan. And I think it's a really beautiful example of what Erin does, which is to help people see their true potential and get after it. Be sure to check out her Instagram at Erin Treib, which is spelled E-R-I-N-T-R-I-E-B, as well as her website, ErinTreib.com. And their film is in post-production. They've pushed uh, most of the way through, but they're trying to wrap it up. So if there's any studios in L.A. listening, 
and you're looking for original, amazing content with a really moving story, reach out to Aaron. I hope you enjoy this podcast with one of my role models, Aaron Treeb. Aaron Treeb, welcome to the show. Thanks, Andy. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. You're down in uh, West Virginia right now working as a photojournalist. What is it that you're doing today, the next couple days? Today, I'm actually um, souping up my my van to start living out of it, which I'm pretty pumped about. Um, I just bought a minivan, and I'm going to try to to live in my van. <laughs> and you're documenting the COVID-19 um, sort of outbreak as well as the impacts in Western Virginia. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, I'm making portraits basically um, of, of uh, small business owners who have had to stop working because of the COVID-19 closures of their stores um, but I'm also just trying to figure out what what's next for me, um, because I, I came back to the States at a really strange time. It was kind of a perfect storm of um, circumstances. My, my lease was up in Turkey. I was moving out um, of my apartment. I was headed to Iraq, actually. Um, this was in mid-March, and this was right when I think America started taking COVID-19 more seriously. And on my way to Iraq, the Iraqi government um, created a lockdown with curfews. And basically, uh, they were stopping street traffic and people from traveling to different provinces. So my work and assignments there got canceled. And I rerouted and came back to the States, which at the time I thought would probably be the safer place to be but as we now know it's it's not um so yeah um i came back without really an apartment or home um or car so my life has been really kind of fragmented over the past i mean like every you know person who's dealt with who's dealing with coronavirus um but uh, yeah, my hunkering down situation has been a little unique since I don't have a house right now. It sounds like it. And so you were based in Turkey for for years working as a, um, is it accurate to say international correspondent or? Uh, I would say a photojournalist. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I moved there in 2015 after I started covering Iraq, I've been covering Afghanistan um, for the past decade since uh, 2009, um, specifically covering U.S. military operations there um, during the surge and, and conflict with Afghanistan. And I uh, moved to Turkey in 2015 and lived there for five years and loved it. And I was working a lot in Iraq um, during that time. And uh, yeah, it's a great place to be. I don't know. I mean, for me, I after a while I, I felt like I, I wasn't being challenged in the same way or growing in the same way. So I'd been thinking about moving for about a year and then my landlord sold my apartment. So it kind of all the forces came together and kind of pushed me, um, to make a big change in my life. Right. And, and before we get into some of the, um, stories that you're, you're currently working on, um, to go a little bit deeper into like background and context as to what 
eventually brought you over to to Turkey and Iraq. Um, can you just dive into your background and talk about um, how that sort of all developed, becoming a photojournalist, and and what grew then to be this this um, Middle Eastern experience that you had for for years now? Sure, um, I grew up in Texas. Um, I knew at the age of 19 that I wanted to be a conflict photographer. I studied photography and earned my uh, bachelor's of science degree from Texas A&M University in Commerce, Texas in 2004. I started shooting um, locally for newspapers like the Dallas Morning News and the Houston Chronicle covering um, daily news events, um, anything from house fires to um, local school events to sporting events and in, in, in and around the cities of Dallas and Houston. And um, then I started shooting more for magazines, um, covering different, I would say, just international or at the time national topics. Like I would follow um, politicians and cover uh, their races um, and yeah, and I think what really flipped my life upside down um, was the decision to start covering conflict in Afghanistan in 2009. And specifically, I wanted to see and witness what a fully engaged U.S. military operation was like. Um, so I went over uh, in 2009 and spent three months embedded with different units and specifically um, a Ford surgical team that was operating on casualties uh, coming back from the front lines. And then I went out with the infantry on embeds to multiple provinces in Afghanistan. And I did that for the following years in 2010 and 11 and definitely got, you know, um, a jumped in the, in the deep end, um, needless to say. <laughs> so, uh definitely learning on my toes kind of situation. And, um, yeah, I just was really fascinated with where Americans were operating, what kind of, I mean, like why these wars started, why they've continued for the past two decades, what that looks like, the people who, um, have dealt with the culture of conflict and have grown up with a culture of war and conflict because of these conflicts and, and how they fare, what does their daily life look like? Um, those topics really fascinate me. And I've, I've, you know, I'm, I'm interested in a lot of places, but I have gravitated towards Iraq and Afghanistan for the past 10 years, um, uh, mainly. And, um, yeah, I just, I love working there. It's definitely challenging. Um, and I'm a little burned out right now, but, um, I, I'll, I'll always keep going back. I think. I mean, those questions are questions that, you know, a cultural anthropologist or a sociologist would ask, um, were you a photographer first and the questions came second or what, what was that light switch moment that really drew you in? Yeah, I've always been a photographer first, but I guess, I mean, I've been a human first with, you know, human questions. And then I try to explore answers to those questions through photography. Um, I, I get a lot of, of satisfaction of being on the ground with people with families talking to them sitting in their living rooms you know for hours listening to their stories um i find that you know as a human being 
really broadening your horizons and understanding differences between yourself and people who are thousands of miles away. Um, and yet how much you actually have in common to me, it's just, it's such an enriching, uh, experience, um, human experience that I get a lot of, um, a lot out of from my work. And so kind of coupled with that comes photography, which I then, you know, I love making images, but I think a huge part of making the images is the relationships that you form with the people that you're photographing. Um, so, um, yeah, I think these questions of curiosity have always kind of, you know, been in my, the depths of my soul since I was even a kid. I can remember, you know, when I was, um, still in elementary school, my mom bought me a point and shoot camera and I'd go around and document like, I didn't know I was documenting at the time, but I was, you know, I would take pictures of, um, I don't know, like whatever at school, you know, school graduation or, um, you know, cheerleading camp. And I would photograph like my uniform the night before and then us getting onto the bus and then everyone getting off the bus. And I put them in chronological order, the photographs in an album so that they would tell a story. And, you know, so I, I feel like it's always been a part of me and a driving force. Um, it's, I kind of feel like I was born to, to do this job. So, um, so yeah. And then the, the conflict part, um, you know, knowing that you're going to put yourself in harm's way, what, what sort of spurred that, you know, as you call it light switch to, to say, you know, this is something that not only do I, I feel like I ought to do, but I'm, I need to do this. It's like a, a calling or a sense of purpose. What created that sort of willingness to put yourself in harm's way? I mean, yeah, I think for me, it was a fascination with war. Um, I had always, you know, um, been someone who loved World War II movies and, and films and um, stories from Vietnam. And um, I think it started at that point as kind of a fascination and wanting to understand conflict and, and specifically combat and what uh, military personnel um, and soldiers put themselves through. I grew up on those photos um, from Robert Kappa and um, Don McCullen. And they, they're striking. I mean, once you see, you know, Don McCullen's famous image of the um, the soldiers staring off into the distance, you you can't really forget. It's kind of burned into your into your um, memory. And so, I mean, part of it was that just always wanting to kind of see and understand that world for myself. And then once you know, once I started doing it, I realized. It, it wasn't a part of me definitely felt and still feels in a way like a voyeur um, because while I'm there experiencing a lot of the same things that the people I'm embedded with are experiencing, I'm still an outsider documenting it. Um, you know, I think I have the privilege as a journalist of never having to have a weapon and make a decision on whether or not to fire it which I think is really traumatic um, and it causes a lot of trauma. Um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, part of it was curiosity. A part of it was wanting to like, just yearning to understand. 
and now I really just feel like if you're if you're going to try to tell that story, it's really hard to tell fully unless you're on the ground in those moments with them experiencing those life and death situations and moments. I mean, I think you ha- as a documentarian and as a storyteller, you know, you it, it's really hard to tell that part if you're not witness to it and you don't endure the same things um, of the people that, you know, you're trying to tell the story of. So for me, it's, you know, it's just kind of a part of what you do um, in those places if you're trying to tell those types of stories. Um, So yeah, you know, it comes with the territory. Um, I don't, I don't like the idea of being, of thinking of myself as an adrenaline junkie. I, I've thought about that a lot and I wonder if I am, I think, uh, I think all war photographers or, you know, photographers that shoot conflict are a little bit, definitely we, we'd be lying to ourselves if we said that that wasn't, um, a driving motivation, but I'd like to think that it's not the, the sole reason. It's certainly not the heartbeat of why I do it. Um, and I think that's really important to, to have those conversations with yourself and make sure you're doing it for, for the right reasons. Yeah. And I mean, checking in with yourself to, to also acknowledge that your barometer of normal, as you expose yourself over and over and over to these um, epinephrine releasing scenarios, your barometer of normal changes. Yeah, it does. And it has for me, for sure. It's had, um, you know, I would say really impactful effects on me mentally and emotionally. Um, my system for a long time was out of whack. Like I would uh, basically respond to normal everyday situations with the same intensity and reaction that I would as if I was in a war zone or as if a bomb had just gone off. Um, I couldn't get my parasympathetic um, system to kick in, which is really important. So yeah, I, I, you know, and a large project I did uh, was on PTSD and the trauma of war. I covered one um, platoon from a company that had experienced an uh, unprecedented amount of suicides and um, uh, attacks um, violent attacks on each other. It was, you know, they, they came back from Afghanistan from when I was with them. And it was like, when they came back, that's when all hell broke loose. It wasn't, it wasn't on the combat post in Logar province or Kandar province. It was when they came back to their army barracks, that shit hit the fan. And, you know, I, I documented that for about six months at Fort Drum in upstate New York. And, um, yeah, I didn't know at the time that I too would, you know, be privy to what these these young um, soldiers were experiencing. So it kind of, yeah, it kind it kind of definitely sneaks up on you. And I mean, I think the photography itself can be a form of escapism, where you're you're looking through the lens and sort of ignoring the periphery and focusing just on it. Um, maybe while these other things are, are mounting in the background, you know, in, in internally anyways. Oh, for sure. Yeah. I think if you take the camera 
it's definitely a, a, a fake buffer, you know, <laughs> if you take it down in those moments, you feel completely out of sorts. But as long as you keep it up in front of you and you keep focusing on your, on your job, um, and looking at the world through your lens, it, you know, you definitely feel removed from the situation that you're in. Would you, uh, do you have experience like of that in the mountains as well? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've had unbeknownst to me, PTSD after, um, events in the mountains where I almost, um, died. I was buried in an avalanche in 2009 and I dealt with it, um, by sort of burying it and it took quite a while to actually be able to reflect on that and recognize the impact that it had. Um, but escapism was sort of my, my mentality and then gradual exposure back into the environment, um, that created the problem in the first place, um, eventually occurred, but yeah, for sure. No, I, I've dealt with it by just sort of burying it. Yeah. I, I've talked to a lot of mountaineers who have undergone similar experiences in the mountains, um, either through accidents or watching, you know, friends, um, get killed. And it's, it's, it's very similar to the experience of what, I think conflict photographers undergo as well. Um, it, you know, it's different types of trauma, but it's still trauma. Um, so yeah. And in so, terms of like real danger too, I mean, it sounds like you were in, um, areas where firefights were going on and you were documenting them as they occur. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, several times, for several years, um, on an embed, it just, you don't know, especially how the conflict would play out in Afghanistan. It was really unclear as to what could happen when, um, because it wasn't so much, um, close range kinetic activity as much as it was, uh, IEDs that were, hidden underneath, um, the roads that we were driving on. So there were a lot of explosions. Um, uh, that was in 2009 and 10. And, um, yeah, I mean, I would say, I would say quite, quite a bit. And so you're just sort of carrying anxiety with you, not knowing, you know, um, what will occur at any given time, whether it's a suicide bomber or, an ID or, or anything like that. You're having to carry that stress with you constantly and vigilance of looking over your shoulder constantly as well. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Um, so let's jump into, um, Afghanistan a bit more. Um, when you and I met a couple of years ago, you approached me, um, at a small gathering in a friend's kitchen and I was talking to another climber, a friend named Renan and you walked up to us and you said, Hey, my name's Aaron and I'm, you know, interested in making this film about climbing in Afghanistan. Um, and, and then that led to a number of other conversations um, between us over the years. How did you come across this story of Afghan mountaineers? 
Yeah, that's a good memory that you have. I can't, I don't, <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. In <laughs> so that makes sense. Gosh, that was in 2000, was that 2017? It must have been 17 or 18. I can't remember. Yeah, a couple was, years ago. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was, uh, so, so, you know, I started um, getting more into, um, you know, female issue driven stories. I don't know why, but it, it was sometime around my early thirties. It just hit me like how cool women actually are. Cause a lot of my stories before then had been focused on men because mainly because the U S military at the time didn't allow women into the infantry they do now, which is amazing. Um, but all my stories on the U S military were, were focused on men. Um, and so, yeah, I had a lot of experience focus, focusing and in, in photographing women. And I don't know why, but I think, I think, you know, I, and it might've been, it might've been my generation, a lot of generations before mine, I didn't have a ton of female role models growing up that I wanted to be like, you know, I remember being in high school thinking to myself, if, if I was a boy, it'd be so much easier because all the stuff that I like to do is what boys like to do, like playing outside, playing sports, camping, and all the girls at my high school, not all, but I would say a majority of them, it was the opposite. You know, they, they, you know, weren't, were into Kate Spade purses and shopping and getting their nails done and just stuff that I just, you know, didn't think was important. And, and not only was it not important, but it didn't reflect who I was. And so I didn't identify um, I identified as a woman, but I thought boys were cooler. <laughs> well, boys also think Kate Spade bags are not important. So we can agree on that. <laughs> that what are not important? Kate Spade Kate bags. Spade bags. <laughs> some do. Some, I think some yeah, yeah, boys yeah, like Kate you're right. Spade bags. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I just remember being really frustrated. Like, why aren't there any girls that like the stuff that I like? And because of just the new wave of feminism that's happening right now, which is so exciting and so cool. Like to be a young girl right now and to, and to be able to see this happening. I just, I mean, I get goosebumps thinking about it because they have so many female role models um, that are really present in the media and really being pushed. Thank God it's trendy right now. Right. Um, I hope it lasts and doesn't, you know, doesn't get phased out, but I just love, love, love that there are these strong athletic women doing hunting and fishing and camping and playing sports and doing all the things that when I was a kid, I don't remember seeing a ton of women being shown doing that. Right. So the whole point is that I didn't really realize how kick-ass women were until I got into my thirties. <laughs> I, I just got old and wise. I don't know. But, um, and I'm 37 right now, so I'm not, I'm not that old, but, um, I started shooting, uh, women in sports and this one team I photographed in Iraq was a, a women's basketball team, a college basketball team. And I showed the challenges that they had as a female basketball team in Iraq, which were not having enough other female teams to play. Um, there were other teams that they would play where, you know, uh, the women were forced to either, uh, not forced, but wore hijabs. I think the coaches 
I think there was an issue, not with the team I was photographing, but like with just collegiate sports in general for, for girls in the Middle East and Iraq specifically. Um, there's issues of the, of a male coach kind of inserting, uh, too much dominance. Um, not really treating players with respect. So yeah, I mean, to me, it was really interesting to see like women led movements in the Middle East and how they were being received by their own cultures and communities. And so I was already kind of tapped into that, to that world or that, I guess, field or genre. And then, um, having worked in Afghanistan, I, I kind of knew, you know, what was happening or if there were new groups popping up and, um, my former film partner at the time actually said, Hey, you know, we should try shooting, um, this team of Afghan mountain climbers in Afghanistan. And I'd heard of them. I think it was in an NPR article. Uh, so I already knew about them and I approached their director, um, and, uh, asked her for permission. And so we started, we started documenting this, um, this group of girls and it's, it's, it was fascinating and it still fascinates me, which is why I chose to make, make a feature length film out of it. And so this is the group called Ascend Athletics based out of Kabul. Is that right? Yes. Um, it's uh, based out of DC and out of Kabul and its director, Marina Legree, uh, was um, worked for nonprofits in Afghanistan for years. And she came up with the idea of creating a scent to try to get more women outside, um, you know, to, to also learn leadership skills, uh, through the outdoors and through hiking. And she, so she started the program, I think in 2014. Um, and, uh, yeah, and it's an incredible nonprofit. I mean, they do such good work with these young women from, um, volunteer work to teaching them, um, you know, things that we, I think as Westerners take for granted, like, um, how to create goals and plan for those goals and then reach those goals. Those are things that are not taught in, in, uh, schools necessarily in Afghanistan. So the fact that there's this outlet for women, not only to get outdoors, but also, um, learn how to develop their character, um, and themselves and, and understand their, their own independent independence, um, is really, really helpful for, for women there. And so this, this idea that, um, a team of climbers is going to attempt the highest peak in Afghanistan, um, is an idea that these women had, or is this an idea that you came up with? Because Mount Nashak, am I saying that right? Is 2,580 feet. That's 7,500 meters this is a, a peak that's never been climbed by women and it's the tallest peak in Afghanistan. Right. Yes. Um, Mount Noshak, you did pronounce it correctly. Um, 24,580 feet. Correct. And, um, no, it was definitely not my idea. Um, we, we were told that the team had been wanting to do it for a while now, but the girls really weren't trained, um, well enough. And, there was just a lot of talk about it as it would be a cool thing for them to do. And I, you know, and my, my film partner at the time kind of latched on and thought, Oh my God, like if we're around when this happens and we're filming them, that, that would just be insane because it's, it's not, you know, I mean, I think for Westerners, it's not that big of, I mean, it's not that big of a deal to think, Oh, there's this mountain that, you know, and, 
a woman's going to climb it. But in Afghanistan, it's, it's everything. It's unheard of. Women don't climb mountains in Afghanistan. They don't go outside to participate in sports. So not only just them hiking outdoors is a big deal. So not only, you know, just, just to get out, but to then attempt this thing that's never been done by an Afghan woman before and by very few Western women, in fact, was, it was kind of insane. Like, we probably, <laughs> there were many times when it was, um, we were just like, this is nuts. Like this, this whole endeavor is nuts. But and, and, yeah, the fact that she summited, it's still unbelievable to me. And so, so the seeds planted and this idea is um, being kicked around. And then all of a sudden there's a group that decides that they're actually going to attempt this thing. And you're there and you decide that you're going to train for this. Um, we must have overlapped somewhere in the middle of that where you'd come back to DC um, because then you dropped into training really hard to be able to also go to 24,000 feet um, and to document this entire process. Right. You and I met right when I started training because I remember I had just tapped into training peaks and I think I had just ordered the book Training for the New Alpinism. And so I wanted to talk to you and Renan about it. Like, like, hey, I'm doing, you know, squats and push-ups. Like, what, does that count? <laughs> you know, like it was, I did not, as a, as a, as someone who's very new to the mountains, I'm still new to the mountains. I was very naive to think that I would be able to train and be prepared enough um for the expedition and and the truth truth be told I, I wasn't like I I didn't end up climbing um because I was uh my pace was slow compared to the other crew members and the more people who went it was finally it was a guide the guide's decision that the more people who went the the bigger the liability it could become and so I actually got, I got cut off my own team, <laughs> which really sucked. It happens. Yeah. I was not happy about it. I'm still not happy about it. Um, but you know. Okay. So hold on back up. So the group, there's a group now of, of women that decide they're going to go in. I got to see a, you shared with me a, a trailer that you put together for a film, this documentary film. And there's three main characters Miriam, Shogufa, and Hanifa. And these are young Afghani women who are intending to climb and be, you know, the first um, Afghani women to stand in the summit. And there's also a group of, of Western guides, female Western guides, um, who've come to help them attain that goal. Um, and so the expedition begins, and it seems like, you know, you've got this very emotional, uh, very purpose-driven group heading into the mountains. Is that accurate? Absolutely. And there's two um, other team members. Uh, did you say, okay, so Shagufa, I don't know if she's in the trailer that you saw or not, but Shagufa, Nikki, Hanifa, Miriam, and Freshta were the five. We were calling them the, the five. They were the five girls from this team Um and I call them a team. It's really, you know, the nonprofit, but 
um, for just the sake of, of um, language, we'll call them the team. Um, five of the cho- five chosen girls, and one by one, they started getting cut from the group who was selected to to go up Noshak for a variety of reasons. Um, and it was so it was heart wrenching to watch this happen. Um, it's a really important part of the film too, because it just shows not only in Afghanistan, I mean, the odds are against you stacked against you from the beginning, but then you have all these other things that get thrown into the mix that I don't think would necessarily be, be there if you weren't in Afghanistan. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, for sure. I mean, there's, um, one young woman, Mariam, that is having these seizures on the side of the mountain. Um, and the narration in the voiceover talks about how these are created as a result of stress and they're psychosomatic. Um, and she talks about how it's her home life and how there's all this stress. And there's this intimate conversation between her and her sister where her sister just says, you know, if you don't make it this year, it's okay. You'll go next year. And, and she leans over and she says, you know, I don't know if I'll be alive next year because there are suicide attacks every day. Um, right. And then her sister says, well, you can go when I go off to school. And she says, you know, if I wait too long, then father will have me married off. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are, these are things and stressors that she carries that, you know, Westerners definitely wouldn't have to carry. Right. And for them, I think a huge difference is that we get so many opportunities in our country not just to go outside. I mean, that that's something that I have taken for granted for years. And now I'm reminded of what a privilege it is. So many women in this, in, on our planet don't get to have the freedom to play outside, but also the challenges that they face is that this for them was a one shot deal. You know, I think for a lot of us, we say, Oh, we didn't make it this year. There was a storm or I got sick. Da da da. We'll, we'll go back and do it the following year. We'll train harder and go back to it t- two years from now. But they don't, they don't get to do that. And so I remember when Miriam was having that conversation with Celia, and I thought, you know, it would be a miracle if this expedition happened again, just because logistically, financially, it was so difficult to put together in the first place. I just couldn't see it coming together like it did again. Um, so yeah, and then you know, Miriam, what 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 she was calling seizures for a while, I firmly believe are panic attacks. They look like panic attacks that I've seen, and also, um, I, I've taken her myself to a clinic, and they verified that she wasn't having seizures. So I think that they're just really debilitating um, panic attacks that she has from uh, childhood, you know. Um, traumatic um, events. So, you know, that, that's, yeah, she, she couldn't climb. um, She couldn't even try to climb because people, you know, the organization was afraid that if she had one of these, these attacks on the side of the mountain, it would cause harm to her other team members Mm -hmm. and which it could have, you know, anything like that at high altitude can be really detrimental. And so as they're training, you're seeing, um, you know, there's a group of women and they're learning to ski for the first time. Um, 
And there's just these beautiful moments where they're, they're fully present, um, where those stressors, you know, that you're referencing have fallen away and they get to just be in the moment and laugh. Um, what, what was it like for them to be free like that? You know, I, that was one of my favorite parts of making the film was watching this display of pure, unadulterated joy and bliss from these girls. Um, Because I knew what their home lives were like. And a lot of them have fairly decent home lives um, and supportive parents, but, you know, they're, they're always restricted. There's never, um, complete freedom. Every decision they make has is dependent upon honor and shame is what I'm wearing going to cause my family honor or shame is how I speak in public going to cause my family honor and shame. I mean, women in Afghanistan socially, it's not, this is mind blowing by the way, to me. Um, I hope it is for your listeners as well, but socially it's not acceptable for women in Afghanistan to laugh in public. It's seen as indecent. They're being, it's, they're being too loud and they're enjoying themselves too much. And it's, it's seen as very improper and, and, and shameful. And can you imagine like not getting to laugh like with your friends at a restaurant? I saw the girls do it several times. Like they'd laugh and then they'd kind of cover their mouths and like almost force themselves to like stuff the laughter down because they didn't want to get in trouble so when they're out in the middle of nowhere in the mountains all of that is shed they're able to sing and dance and laugh and play and make inappropriate jokes and it's just it's so beautiful and I think that's you know a lot of why these girls love being in the outdoors is that it just gives them this freedom that they don't otherwise have and you also brought um, some Western guides with you who were experienced mountaineers, um, at least some of the, the faces, um, that you do see in the film are female guides. Um, what was it like to have a female role model in the group, like leading, you know, tying the rope, tying the knots, being up in the front of the group, um, for these young women to see? It was great. It was great. And I think, you know, one thing that the organization has done a great job of, Ascend has, has done a great job of, is um, making sure they integrate female guides and role models. Um, you know, first and foremost, in Afghanistan, it would be a little awkward to have a, a man be the guide. So there was kind of a cultural um, requirement that the guides be female But also to have these girls be able to see someone doing what in their culture is seen as a man's job was also great. Um, It just reinforces that that women can do these things um, and are good at these jobs. So uh, our head guide was Emily Drinkwater, who is, I think, a fairly well-known name in the mountain climbing community. And she was awesome. Um, you know, things were, were pretty intense on the expedition and she just, um, I really admire how she kept her cool and was, um, yeah, just really professional and, um, 
definitely the you know I don't think there would have been a summit without without her. And and so one of the other young women in the group um, named Shagufa talks about how it isn't just about her success and that she's on a mission to change the way women are perceived. Um, you know, she sees that by going outside and she sees what Emily's doing, that you don't just have to stay home and cook. And her mission is to spread that, that example. Is that accurate? Yeah, absolutely. I think all of these, all of the women on the team want, want that, but Shagufa was, she's just a spitfire, um, young, young lady, very fierce, very outspoken, I loved spending time with her. She was also very funny, um, loved to tell jokes, uh, <laughs> always goofing around. She, she's such a cool girl. And um, yeah, she had a mission in mind to do this for women in Afghanistan. I mean, I think they all did. Um, what was uh, particularly heartbreaking about Shagufa is that she got told I think the night before um, or maybe two nights before that she wouldn't be climbing no shack. And it just, it was devastating. I mean, it was, yeah, it's, it still makes me tear up because um, she wanted it so badly and didn't get, didn't get to try. Um, and she didn't get to try because the guide deemed that she wasn't strong enough or the guide decided that, in an effort for the collective group success that they'd really only be able to focus on one climber's success um, to make sure that everyone was safe. Precisely. Yeah. The, the latter, you know, I think the problem with Malshak was that there were, there's so few climbers who have climbed it that there's, very little information. There's hardly any information on the internet about it. And I know cause I've dug up every single piece of information about that mountain that I've been able to, um, there's no routes. There's, uh, yeah, it's basically, it's not a popular mountain. It's not a mountain that's sought after in the mountain community. And so you're basically going without any sort of roadmap. Um, and there's no infrastructure around it. I mean, the, Unlike a lot of mountains, Everest included, there's tea shops or, from what I've heard, hiking stores on the way up. Um, well, there's at least camp. logistical support, right? If something happens, um, you can right. get helicopters to a certain elevation. There's other climbing teams on the mountain that can respond, and they do respond when avalanches occur or um, if there's injuries or whatever it may be. Um and it sounds like a no shock. You're just totally on your own. Totally on your own. There's no helicopters that will even come to the base of the mountain um, with insurance companies because it sits on the border of Pakistan. And it's the Wakhan Corridor, which is where the mountain is situated, is um, kind of surrounded by ISIS insurgents. At that time, it was anyway. I'm not sure about right now. But yeah, I mean, nobody wants to touch this place. And so to even if someone got injured... The closest a helicopter, the closest we could get a helicopter was a three-day walk out of the valley um, to a town, which is where a helicopter would land. But by that time, some you know the person, if the injury is grave enough, the person will, would would have died, so it was kind of pointless. 
so yeah, that, all of that made it, um, really, really difficult. And I think Emily's call to only take one girl, which was Hanifa, who ended up summiting, was based on a few things. Um, the first that the mountain was far more treacherous than any of us had planned on it being. And I think we can all get an idea, but once I think Emily got up there and started climbing, she realized it was, it was much more difficult and dangerous. Um, and you know, another reason is that the girls just weren't trained enough. I think they had been in crampons for a total of maybe two hours practicing before the expedition. So, um, she just, you know, at the end of the day, it was about taking the strongest climber who had a chance, the best chance of summoning, but also not taking people who could endanger the team, um, you know, or, or cause the whole operation to fall through or cause, you know, someone to die or get hurt. And so Emily selects a young woman named Hanifa and Hanifa, it sounds like dealt with hardship early on. She was married off at 14 years old. Um, she was in a, uh, rough sort of abusive situation, eventually leaves him, gets divorced. Um, you must have seen an entire transformation occur where this slightly shell-shocked, shy woman um, who isn't smiling and laughing a ton goes out in the mountains, has this group camaraderie, and and seems to sort of reinvent herself. Um, at least in the, in the course of the film, it appears to be that way. Can you talk about that transformation? Sure. Um, we didn't get to see... Hanifa's past life because um, a lot of that's the, the, the events that happened to her happened um, before we met her. So we came to understand her story uh, through her telling it to us. But even the time from the time we started filming in 2017 to when she summited in 2000, um, oh my God, what, what year was that? 2018, sorry. <laughs> um, we saw huge changes made, um, in her character, her personality. I mean, yeah, I, I think when we started filming in 2017, she was much quieter. She, um, she's, uh, at the time was illiterate. So she also felt, I think, pretty insecure about the fact that she couldn't read Dari. She thought the team what, what, you know, that the nonprofit wasn't going to accept her, um, as a member because of that. And of course that, you know, that wasn't true. Um, and they did, but yeah, I, I think just watching her bloom and blossom and, and open up and become the leader that she, she is today was a really beautiful experience as a filmmaker to get to document and, and witness that as well. And early on, did it seem like she sort of recognized that she wasn't just climbing for herself and that, you know, she was really climbing for, uh, a re as a representative of all of the women in the group, as well as an inspiration to all the women in Afghanistan? Yeah. Hanifa had this quiet, she has this quiet, reserved grit, this almost like, <laughs> it's like a secret weapon, I think. Because <laughs> she's so unassuming when you meet her, and she's so 
um, delicate in her, in just her manner. And then little do you know that under, under all that is this, you know, unbreakable spirit and determination. And I think for Hanifah, the odds, the, the, um, the achievement might've meant more because of her previous life as a, as you forced into marriage and, and kind of as a, a slave to her husband at the age of 14, because she had gone through s- such an, an, you know, an incredibly traumatic and difficult situation and having to escape that. I think, um, you know, I don't want to say it meant more to her cause that's certainly not true, but I think just the, the fact that she was able to, to do something so extraordinary against insurmountable odds made it, um, I don't know. I mean, I think that, you know, it changed her, but it also like, you know, um, refined, like, uh, what am I trying to say? It deepened her character as she grew in strength to be able to achieve that, if that makes sense. And, and so walk us through sort of that summit bid. Um, what did that look like? Yeah, the team, you know, as, as I said, I was at base camp with Shagufa and Nikki. So a lot of my experience of the summit was through the radio, um, that, you know, we were on the ground communicating with the team and I actually had to leave the day before the summit to go renew my team's passports because, or their visas, because their visas were about to expire and then we, they wouldn't have been able to legally leave the country. So it was, it was kind of, um, it was a, it was a big chaotic soup of, (laughs) as I think a lot of summits are, am I right? I mean, I don't, my mountain experience is very limited, but isn't there like a lot of drama and stress, like right at that peak moment? Yeah. I mean, it's the culmination. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it it was, there was a lot of, uh, a lot of drama and stress going on at this time. And, um, so I wasn't there, but from what I know from footage and, and Emily having recounted, uh, what happened, um, there was a storm and Hanifa was very, very sick and it, you know, I think this was probably 14 days in something like that. They all just kind of resigned that they would turn around and Hanifa wasn't getting any better. She couldn't keep anything down. And then I think on the morning of after resting a couple of days, she kind of popped out of her tent and said, okay, I'm better. Like, let's do this. And I mean, honestly, like talking to Emily about it after she, <laughs> she you know, she was gracious enough to, to guide this team but she spoke frankly with me and said, I honestly thought maybe we'd make it to camp too, if we were lucky and that would be it. And so beyond that, no one was anticipating that Hanifa would have the wherewithal to keep, to keep going. Um, so after camp, I think they're at this point, they're at camp four. Um, Emily's on her way up. And then my former uh, film partner, is pretty sick. And so Emily had to take her back down to camp four. So Hanifa, Hanifa kept going with another guide and they started late around 9am. Um, 
or I actually, I think even later than that, I don't even think they started till, till noon. So they didn't make it to the summit until around 8 PM. So they had to, uh, come down in complete darkness with, with, you know, their headlamps obviously. But, um, yeah, it was, it was kind of like a late thing where they just didn't even, I don't even think anyone was anticipating that it would actually happen. And then it did. And slowly, but surely she put one foot in front of the other and, and made her way to the summit with a guide. And, uh, there's footage of her standing on the summit and she first gives a shout out to her team members and then she gives a shout out to Afghanistan and then all the girls of, of Afghanistan as well. Exactly. Yeah. And she, um, it's such a beautiful moment, her standing on top of, of that peak, having made history. The only person who had, who, the only Afghan who's done it before her is a man named Malang Daria, who's from the Wakhan. And he summited in 2009 and he runs a, uh, expedition, um, uh, logistics tourism company that he uh, supplied our um, porters for us. And I remember him saying something to Hanifa right before we set off on the trek and some, something like, um, oh, you'll, he didn't say, I don't remember if he said you'll never be able to do this, but it was something like in Dari that was, it was pretty derogatory towards her. Like I'll, you know, I'll always be the only Afghan, which is a terrible thing to say to Hanifa, obviously. Um, it just shows you the male chauvinism and ego that drives that culture, unfortunately. And seeing her on that peak proving <laughs> not only Malang wrong, but every other male Afghan who thought she couldn't do it is just so satis- satisfying. I'm sure to Hanifa as well, but it's like, damn girl, like she went and did the thing that everyone said was impossible yeah and of and course just, of course if she failed everyone would say see we told you so exactly yeah exactly which she you know definitely she was afraid of and that might have helped drive her to to um complete it but um yeah it's it was amazing to watch her do that and um get to tell everyone that she was the first first Afghan woman to summit her country's highest peak. And then so she comes down, there's a celebration, but it seems like it's somewhat um, intentionally muted a little bit. It is. There was a lot of fear of retaliation from the public. Um, first, any sort of big group gatherings outside in Afghanistan are dangerous simply because you never know when a suicide bomb or any any type of bombing is going to go off. That year um, that she summited was in 2018 was the highest. Uh, it was the year that there were the highest casualties from. I'm um, oh, sorry, I'm losing my wording. 2018 was the year that there were the highest number of casualties from uh, insurgent attacks. Terrorism attacks. That's the word I'm looking for. And she's, she's clearly concerned about it in the film too. She talks about how she doesn't want to become too popular for fear of being assassinated or attacked with acid. Right. Because that definitely happens. Um, 
she, yeah. So, I mean, you know, we, we couldn't tell any of the local news crews about it until several days later. We didn't make the information public. It was a very hushed, muted, you know, receiving of her. Um, and so, which, you know, I think was hard on her because she wanted everyone to know. She wanted to, sh- to shout it from the rooftops of what she had done and, and, you know, that she had succeeded and she couldn't do that because it was for her own safety and her family's safety. And she also expresses that, you know, her dream of standing on the summit, um, isn't complete because the country hasn't cheered for her yet. And she feels like she's been told to keep her success hidden in her heart, um, is the quote that's used, but it, it seems like she's intentionally getting the word out, um, trying to share it. And towards the end of this film that you've put together, there's a a situation in a schoolroom where, you know, she's almost acting as a teacher to some degree, um, in like a, in a school or something. And, and she's sharing her story as being a climber and setting goals and, it, it seems like she's trickling that message out. Is that is that accurate? Yes, and she has been since then. I think you know, Ascend was careful to not unleash all of the information about her summit at once, which I think was really strategic and and you know helpful to protect Hanifa and their organization. And I think, you know, kind of a slow trickle is what's happened over the past two years where she has done press events. She has appeared on um, media platforms and television shows. I think she was on the BBC and um, she's been on a couple of programs being interviewed, which is great. You know, so I think, you know, when she said that it, it was in 2018 and so it was still fresh and now it's, you know, they've kind of... Um, let the information reach the public more. And then, you know, when our film comes out, um, everyone will get to see her story. And so uh, talk a little bit about the film. It's called An Uphill Battle. Where where are you at with the film right now? Yeah, we are um, halfway through, I would say, our uh, our film edit. Um on our way to creating a rough cut. It's going really well. We are partnered with Time Studios, which is the um, longer form narrative film branch of Time Magazine, which uh, is an incredible brand to work with. They've been really supportive and, and awesome. And um, and yeah, basically, uh, it's kind of a series of, of going back to the edit um, raising more money, which, you know, doc films take a lot of money <laughs> to raise in order to make them happen. And um, we're hoping for a premiere in 2021. And we're really excited about it. I mean, I just recently saw a new assembly cut of the of the film, and it's so cool to watch it all come together. This is my first documentary film. And so the process to me is quite new. Um, it's been a really uh, steep learning curve, but to see your film start to come alive to, to life with the characters and for the edit to start making sense in terms of storytelling is, has been really exciting. And um, yeah, so it's, it's a really cool process. And in that process, you've gotten um, 
some some really good coverage. Um, one of which was being on the cover of Outside Magazine with a bunch of other female leaders and role models. Do you consider yourself a role model? I would hope so. Yeah, I think. Um, I mean, that I, I, I guess I try to live my life in a way that my sister's kids would be proud of and can and can look up to. To me, that's always kind of the barometer. Is um, am I setting a good example? you know, for her kids. And yeah, I, I have, you know, my, my life mission is to, um, live in such a way that I, you know, I can be proud of myself and that, um, I think set a good example for, for others. So I, I hope that's what I'm doing. I try, I try hard at it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the, uh, you know, the entire group of of climbers, um, you know, was witness to you filming and running around shooting and, and doing your part to be, you know, the documenter of their adventure as well. Yeah. You know, I think, um, it, it was an interesting relationship we had because it was, it was always a balance. And this is true. I think anytime you're, you're filming, but it's a balance of, of getting close enough to the subjects that you are featuring while also remembering that what your job is, is to do, you know, what, what you're there to do and what your job is and to sort of maintain, um, that separation. And that, that for me is really hard. I always get incredibly close to the, to the people I'm filming, um, and have a hard time keeping that, you know, that barrier, um, between us, which is necessary, I think, if you want to do your job well. Um, but, uh, yeah, I, I love those girls so much and I'm so excited that they, they are role models in their society and they're teaching, you know, the ones that come after them, how, how, what it looks like to be a woman. And I think they're showing younger girls, uh, to, circle back, you know, they're showing younger girls an, uh, an example of what a woman in Afghanistan could be that I was saying that I, I didn't necessarily feel like I had growing up. I didn't have those strong female role models. Um, so one of Ascend's hashtags that they use on Instagram is that girls are, girls are also strong. And I think that's really great to you know for the girls that are younger than them to say hey look like all the stuff that you're taught that only men do not true like we're doing it also and we're doing it better than them well and it appears at least in the film that um the involvement that these young climbers have in classrooms now um they're serving as real life role models you know and they're yeah. they're teaching what they've learned and they're passing that on and and it, it appears as though it's helping with the younger women, um, you know, sort of the next generation to set their goals, you know, and there's this quote, um, one woman says that, uh, quote, a goal helps us come up with a plan so we can get to our dream. Eventually a dream without a plan is just a wish. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're, you're watching them now become teachers. Right. And that's, I think that's a sin's entire model is to teach, um, these women how to become leaders. 
so that they can kind of pick up the torch and carry it and then pass it down to the generation beneath them. And so they're, and, and they're doing that, you know, um, these girls who, who, like you said, came in meek and, um, just as afraid and not, you know, not really that open are now blooming and, um, taking that torch and really, um, showing that they can be great leaders and great teachers. So the, the work sample that you shared with me is incredible. Um, and I'm super excited to see the, the final edit once it comes out. Um, where can people follow along with, with you, what you're doing, um, as well as sort of updates on the film? Yeah, we um, have are planning to create a bigger social media presence, um, hopefully in the next coming months and also as soon as things kind of quiet down and hopefully, um, you know, a normal life <laughs> resumes. Um, but for now, people can follow uh, me at Aaron Treb on my Instagram. That's uh, my name. And um, uh, let's see, where else? And website, AaronTreb.com? Yes, yes. All right, I'll link to them um, in the show notes for sure. Um, we're hitting about an hour. Thank you for um, sitting and talking for so long with me. Is there anything else you think you want to share with the listeners about this project or anything else um, before we check out? No, I think we're good. And this is perfect timing because I have um, another call uh, at three thirty my time. So where I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Perfect. Well, Aaron Treve, thank you for uh, sharing and thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. Well, come on, podcast.